Hello out there. To kick off October, I have two of the scarier stories, in my opinion, from Tier 13 Dead Time Stories. You'll hear my youngest son in the beginning say, Hi, everybody. It's Dead Time Stories. That's my little boy, Charlie. And uh, speaking of boys, I mean, both of these stories include horrible things that happen to boys. So boy, oh boy, get ready. It's October, boy. <laughs> it's October. Eyes cocked, doors locked, stay paranoid. Let's have a great Halloween season. Hi, buddy. Hey, it's the time stories. Uncle TikTok. I've always wondered what it would be like to be a mental patient. There have been times where I know I would have qualified, maintaining sweet obscurity only by gritting my teeth, keeping my mouth shut, opening it occasionally to chomp down on a cigarette filter, swallowing screams with a chaser of beer until the psychic swirling waters became tepid again. We are all a little nutty at times. At all times, really, it's just a matter of management, of discipline, of self-control. The mind is about as stable as a game of kerplunk. Your marbles won't be lost as long as you don't go pulling at the bed of straws they so perilously rest upon. It would probably be nice to just let your mind go, lose it, let it deflate like a balloon, collapse like a beach jellyfish. Hidden praises, pains, predictions, and paranoia spewing from your mouth in an endless expulsion of cheap glass, a scramble of cat's eyes and alleys, the mind freed in exchange for a body confined. Take me away, put me in a hole, I don't care anymore, I just can't do it. That is the selfish symphony none too many of us will ever lose enough composure to compose Ed Kemper that big lug just seems so misunderstood Eileen Warnos what a gal sad backstory I think with Edit she'd have been a lot of fun Andrea Chikatilo I don't know boy I just feel when I look at him if ever someone maybe just needed a friend there is relief in confinement for some you can see it on their face, read it in their body language. They look as if their souls have slumped. That's why I mentioned those three. To me, it seems that the demons released their strings once the host was incarcerated. Nothing to work with anymore, maybe. There is rest for the wicked, after all, but only while incarcerated. Especially in the psych wards. Imagine, if you will, just wearing slippers and pajamas all day, being high on sanctioned narcotics, playing backgammon with ghosts in the gardens, dipping grilled cheese in tomato soup, nibbling tuna on white, perhaps. It's been a while since I had myself a simple tuna sandwich. Some of us should be tucked away like that forever, never left to consider many choices, forced to be tortured by them. A lot of great, talented people drift away in asylums. A lot of patients whom you can never fathom causing harm being a nuisance. And the reason for that, of course, is that 
Though they may have pulled their straws, they haven't lost their marbles. They've become them, and now the facility itself is the straw bed they depend upon to keep from falling apart and causing slippage of systems all around them. You know the type I'm talking about. Look around you, for the one who's always spilling gas on the fire, forever dropping their marbles around your feet, and others who suffer as their support system, a system with parts holding onto one another like children on ice while the monkey wrench bangs around beneath, abusing the hole so as not to use up the sum. I'm fucking nuts. Somewhere along the line, a knot rattled some screws loose, and as I write this, I realize that. But I'm off the ice. My ankles are healed up, no more monkey wrenches grinding my stride to a halt. I've got no more patience left in me for suffering stragglers. But that doesn't mean I've lost interest in what adventures tortured souls have when left to spend time as their demons see fit. Adolf Gustav Seefeld of Potsdam, Germany. Required containment. Needed institutionalization. From the start. And he'd had it. The seventh of seven children and a child of the 70s, the 1870s to be clear. Young Adolf found himself coddled and perhaps enabled to become self-centered as the family baby. Though Germany was stabilizing into an empire after successive victories in war, there was plenty to be preoccupied with as the great worldwide depression was coming. And before long, Adolf found himself suddenly not so cocooned as love tends to become less recreational in lean times. At the age of 12, Adolf, like many young men of the time, decided he needed to get out into the world and find work and adventure. So young Adolf Seefeld hit the streets, streets that at this time in Germany were rich with character from country folks selling vegetables to gypsies hawking talismans to hobos painting storefronts in exchange for ale, sailors tearing at the bodices of prostitutes in alleyways. It was fascinating, invigorating to the tired eyes of young Adolf Seefeld that the world had so much to offer. And he soon decided, like many free thinkers eventually do, that he would be a drifter. His chosen trade would be that of watchmaker this being a traveling man's occupation and one that appealed to young Adolf's own complicated inner workings. It didn't take long for the bright yet still naive boy to find himself in a world of trouble. Innocence, green newcomers to any situation, are like water. They find the path of least resistance, then settle. And for Adolf, that path led him to the slums, where the people are most welcoming to strangers, most likely to ask one in for a drink as they fear less and need more, always angling, forever appearing generous, stuffing a smoke in your mouth while lifting the wallet from your pocket. And as I said, it wasn't long before Adolf walked into a trap and found himself in over his head. Two men raped him. They lured him into a secluded spot with the bait of friendship and had their brutal way with the boy. This would be a frightening thing, a devastating incident for most 12-year-olds, but again, like I said, Seafelt's inner workings were 
complicated. He enjoyed the rape, thrilled in being manhandled, controlled and forced to do things that previously had been beyond his comprehension. The assault was liberating, tore away the cocoon like a call, set fire to the notion that everything would always be okay, a notion most children hold dear and some even take with them into a nervous adulthood. Adolf Gustav Seafelt was reborn in the rape, baptized by blood and semen and the slick sweat only produced by pure adrenaline, pure terror. And when it was done, he knew what he was, what he would become. Uncle TikTok is what the children called him. The smartly dressed and clean-cut man had an unclish vibe, almost grandfatherly. He was handsome in the way of men like Anthony Hopkins. That's to say, mainly from his dress, his attitude. Incredible what clothing and attitude can do for an otherwise unremarkable-looking man. In the most famous and maybe only known photo of an aged and criminally active Adolf Seafelt, he sports his trademark light gray bowler-style hat and is dressed in a chic yet cozy-looking quarter-length coat. On his back is a bulging bag full of his worldly possessions, no doubt. Dangling from his hand is a small leather bag, likely containing the tools of his trade, the tools of a watchmaker. Overall, he appears as the type of fellow anyone would stop dead to speak with if he gestured to do so. His charisma is intoxicating, even through a near 100-year-old photo. He had married in his early 20s, but a divorce soon followed. Adolf never again has a permanent residence after this split, though he does have a son, a boy who, like his grandfather, will end up in an asylum. Adolf himself would be in and out of asylums and prisons for assaults on young boys through his entire adult life. Returning the favor, maybe, for the delicious awakening forced upon him as a youngster. Though Adolf, Uncle TikTok Seafelt, would take things to a whole new and much more ceremonious place for his brand of innocent stealing. Seafeld's style of deviant criminality would, like everything else in his life, be done with originality, grace, and a surprising dash of perverse beauty in its debauchery. Four decades of roaming Germany, selling watches, fixing clocks, and assaulting adolescents would be the lifestyle. But it wasn't until the Third Reich that Uncle TikTok would be recognized for what he was, a journeyman serial killer who have been quietly putting to death dozens of Germany's children between cooldowns in the country's institutions of reform. Say what you will of the Nazis, but they were nothing if not relentless when it came to methods of pursuit, capture, and interrogation of those deemed an enemy of the Reich. So when a pattern began to emerge in the deaths of German children aged 4 to 12, the killer was doomed once a serious investigation was deemed to be necessary. The first accused would end up suiciding himself in his cell via makeshift noose. The charges levied against him too devastating to bear, even though he was innocent. Little boys, dressed in sailor suits, 
that was the victim type. So when another tiny body was discovered, dressed in the odd garb fashionable for early 20th century children, the dead man's name, tarnished as he had felt it to be, was then cleared. Meanwhile, Uncle TikTok's time was running out. During an investigation into men sharing the sick proclivity for attacking and molesting little boys, Adolf Seafelt's name came up on a short list, along with the information that the watchmaker had been seen in villages where more than one of the boys had been stolen from. Lured, not into an alley of a slum, but out into the beauty of the forest, the discovered victims of Uncle TikTok, thought to have possibly exceeded 100 in all, were found in identical circumstances. Little sailors, appearing to be in a deep sleep, some found in clusters, others found wrapped around one another like children tend to do when scared or cold, had been dying by the will of one man over the course of four decades. The majority of cases thought to have been the result of folly, a child lost in the wilderness, eventually succumbing to exhaustion and lying down in a peaceful clearing to rest forever. Legend has it that Uncle TikTok would hypnotize his impressionable victims with a pocket watch naturally, then perform oral sex on them until he himself ejaculated, the majority of the boys being too young to do so themselves, of course, even if he wanted them to, then leave the spellbound child to die of hypothermia, alone, molested, and completely lost in their own minds, out there in the woods on their backs, eyes wide open, unblinking even to the touch of snowflakes. Again, legend has it. More likely Seafelt chloroformed his prey than strangled them to death, but the hypnosis theory sure is scarier, more compelling, and my gut doesn't completely rule it out. His diaries did him in. Uncle TikTok was a meticulous keeper of his own time. So much of it had been empty until he had found himself, the monster inside, and he'd kept careful notes of his travels, made clever little indications of his killings that the Nazis had no trouble considering an outright confession, though Adolf Seefeld never admitted to it. He likely wanted more, and more could not be had if he were dead. In the end, they could only prove a dozen one for each hour of the clock. After a month-long trial that brought an already shamed nation's eyes to its boots, Adolf Seafelt was swiftly executed by guillotine on May the 23rd, 1936. And it wasn't until the Reich had fallen that it could be confirmed the right man had been taken this time. The woods may have been full of craters, downed aircraft, and eventually Soviet tanks, but they no longer held the ultimate handiwork of the watchmaker. His heinous crimes had been overshadowed slightly by the Fuhrer's slow fall from disgrace, and when they came back to light as maybe a distraction from all that had been suffered by the German people, the parents of little boys in a Germany that had been the hub of doled out and self-inflicted suffering for so long could finally allow themselves to feel recreational love again and hug their little sailors close. A small act with tremendous consequences should it be withheld from those who need the magic of affection to keep at bay the monster inside that is more than willing to find unthinkable ways to fill. A lost soul's idle time. 
Rosetta Stone, everybody. You know, for a long time, I've been wanting to go to Japan, but the thing holding me back is that I'm intimidated by the language. And that's why I've been going pretty hard at the Rosetta Stone service. I want to be able to take my girl to Japan, a place that she's always wanted to go, and suddenly just start speaking fluent Japanese at the restaurant. That's my goal. <laughs> Rosetta Stone is the most trusted language learning program available on a desktop or as an app, and it truly immerses you in the language you want to learn. It's been a trusted expert for 30 years with millions of users, 25 languages offered. It's fast language acquisition. Rosetta Stone immerses you in a bunch of ways. Uh, there's an intuitive process where you pick up the language naturally, first with words and phrases, then sentences. They have the speech recognition feature. Built-in true accent gives you feedback on your pronunciation. Uh, it's like having a personal trainer for your accent. It's convenient, and it's an amazing value, especially with this offer here. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, Dark Topic listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com slash today. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com slash today. Today. Hi, buddy. Hey, it's bedtime stories. Friday, December 20th, 2019, Port Clinton, Ohio. 14-year-old Harley Dilly disappears while on his way to school in his small town. A home surveillance camera captures a miserable-looking figure crossing the street Harley lived on just before 7 a.m. that day. And his mother will later confirm that the image is that of her so-called little mama's boy. Tearfully, upon seeing the image, she'll recall her last words to her son as being, quote, Get your ass to school, Harley. After her son had unsuccessfully feigned illness in order to stay home. It was the last day of classes before Christmas vacation, so when Harley failed to show up, something that wasn't entirely unusual, it likely wasn't a code red situation for the school. They attempted to notify the Dillies, but Mom's voicemail was full, and Dad, who worked as a garbage man, was at work. Later, when he found out that Harley had neither been to school nor returned home, his attitude was that his son would come home once he was hungry or cold. Harley, after all, was a baby about the cold. Those are Dad's exact words. Get your ass to school, or Mom's. Harley Dilly did not grow up in the most loving environment, was rumored to have peed in bottles to avoid leaving his room at times. Sure, there would be plenty of tears later, plenty of guilt, and of the sincerity on that front, I have no doubt. But these parents, by all accounts, were kind of shit. Harley Dilly was small for his age. Thin, four foot nine and a hundred pounds with a full belly, which wasn't often. Harley was a picky eater, something he'd always been, but had failed to grow out of. He would only eat certain things of certain colors, nothing too mixed up or pushed together. Harley took showers any chance he could. This behavior likely had something to do with him being on the spectrum of autism. Asperger's, with a clear touch of both ADD and OCD mixed in. But not touching, of course. 
The kid was what, in the good old days, people used to simply label a character. And his YouTube channel proves this statement. Scrawny, strange, and bespectacled, Harley was without a doubt in my mind, bullied for the way he was. Though he put up a shield in the form of overconfidence to protect himself, a tactic that had to have made things worse. Even I, while watching his YouTube videos, found myself rolling my eyes a little, then wiping them as I realized how sad it is to watch a kid try to be what he understands is normal and appear completely abnormal as a result. Anyways, Harley Dilly 2.0 was his channel's name, if you'd like to check it out. Actually, you know what? Okay, I'll, I'll save you the time. Here, I will insert a clip to one of his excruciating videos. Um, and the one that I will play, he's locked out of his house, sitting on a crappy porch swing in his yard. It's a gloomy day, and considering what the boy's near future holds, an extremely depressing video and clip. Enjoy. And she locked me out of the house, so right now I'm outside. Yep, the house is locked. Um, it is 3.30. I haven't ate anything, and I still haven't even got to do, get my work done. My mom's gone. She won't answer the phone. Um, so right now I'm a little outside. I got nothing better to do, so what's the point? So I thought I would stream this because I'm not doing a video of this. I legit was scared because I thought I was about to have to go to DH for 30 days because that's if I get another complaint to the police, I'm going to DH for 30 days. I mean, I've already took a YouTube leave, but I'm trying to do stuff, guys. If you knew what was going on in my life. Okay, you get the gist. You know this kid now. I know this kid. My son is kind of like this kid. If I treated him poorly. Harley, it is said, had a couple of friends, even an ex-girlfriend, apparently. But if you know the world of kids, none of that means quite what it's intended to sound like. Harley had acquaintances that put up with him on occasion. In fact, not long before Harley disappeared, his two so-called best friends had been taken to a Cleveland Cavaliers game by a parent. Harley had asked if he can come too on the eve of his disappearance is when this took place. But sorry, Harley, no extra tickets this time. Or any other time. It's this kind of thing, and it's difficult to say, hard to hear, but Harley can be annoying in large doses. He was the type of kid you didn't mind throwing a bone to every once in a while because you felt bad for him, but you wouldn't, you wouldn't invite him all the way in. Assuming, hoping that someone else further down the line would show him some genuine interest. It's a difficult age, 14. It's hard even for those who do well socially. It's a lot to expect of young teens to summon interest in those they truly don't connect with because that effort will sever cords they'd rather have plugged in. There are only so many outlets at the age of 14. The general attitude at the Dilly home when Harley failed to return that Friday evening, then all of Saturday, was that he must be at a friend's house, or that he'd run off somewhere to hide and would return once cold and hungry enough. Harley had had an argument with his father about getting a new phone in the week leading up to his disappearance. 
This phone that Harley often used to record little videos for his YouTube channel had stopped working after being dropped, and knowing kids like Harley, this would have been a highly upsetting event. More upsetting, though, is the possibility that searchers would later have been able to ping Harley's location had he still been carrying the phone. Or even more upsetting is that Harley would have been able to call for help. Help that he desperately needed in the excruciating hours that followed his vanishing on the way to school five days before Christmas. He'd been a brave little boy, Harley Dilly. Little boy might seem like a reach for impact here, but Harley was little. He'd have been the second or third biggest kid in fourth grade if he were attending as the 14-year-old version of himself. And we consider fourth graders as little, correct? Also, you heard his small voice already, hence, Harley Dilly had been a brave little boy when he climbed the 50-foot antenna to the rooftop of a vacant two-story home across the street from his own on the morning of December 20th, 2019. He was adventurous, mischievous for certain, but brave works for me as we imagined him traversing the slippery shingles of this gray two-story home with red accents, past the window of an attic on this gloomy winter's morning. The temperature was near freezing. There may have been frost, at least dew. It's difficult to accept, but Harley then approached the 13-by-9-inch chimney opening and, maybe after a moment of gathering his courage, slipped in feet first in an attempt to enter the residence like Santa come five days early. He likely shuffled his way down and into the chimney before eventually coming to a squeeze stop, much too far down into the dark to make his way back up. Harley was stuck. Bad. He likely envisioned himself popping out from a fireplace and having the day to explore the house, but instead he was now stuck at the point on the second floor where the chimney abruptly slanted before making its way down to the first. I'm certain it didn't take long for panic to set in and for his small body to begin to be squeezed by the walls of the shrinking chute. Harley decided to take off his coat and Cleveland Brown's jersey to make more room to wiggle around in despair. He was able to stuff them out of a vent he found with his hands behind his head and popped out. He slipped off his shoes, which dropped to the floor below, a floor he hadn't expected to encounter. Harley likely had expected to find more room, not less down there. And at this point, he most certainly began to scream for help. Somehow, he wiggled his pants off and his socks. In a show of absolute panic, he pushed his glasses out of the vent, too. They, along with his coat and jersey, were eventually what led to his discovery, weeks down the line, after he had suffocated, when searchers found him behind a wall behind the bricks by feeling around with their hands through the vent after coming across his clothing on the second floor of the house. A house that was a summer home and at the time was being renovated. A house that Harley had attempted to spend his last day of the school year within. A house, a chimney, where he ended up spending the rest of his life there within. Naked and alone. Scared and miserable. The case of Harley Dilly is thought by some to have a much more insidious structure than the simple layman's version I just laid out. Some think he was murdered, then stuffed into the chimney from the attic. 
Some point to the fact that his father had clocked into work manually the day he disappeared by pen rather than print as his fellow employees had been. Then, as relayed from his garbage truck's GPS, come home for about an hour before lunch for unknown reasons. Some think it disturbing that the father commented that Harley would come home once he was cold and hungry. Comments he made around the time he and his wife were posting photos of their dinner date together while their son was indeed cold and hungry in a chimney across the street from their house. All right, maybe that's unfair. But what isn't unfair is to judge them on how they waited until midnight of the Saturday following his Friday morning disappearance to alert authorities to his not having been heard from since his mother rolled over at 6.30 a.m. Friday to tell Harley to get his ass to school after he'd requested to stay home. Some think that the mattress his father dropped off at the dump after the GPS pinged him as having gone back to his house around 11 a.m. of the day his son found himself casketed in the chimney across the street to be suspicious that maybe they swapped mattresses after the mother beat her son to death or something. I've found no real evidence to back this theory, this conspiracy theory, and for the record, I do not think Harley was murdered. Though I definitely smell a little something fishy in the air. Or is that piss from the jugs in Harley's room, that little mama's boy? It sure is a sad tale, that of young Harley Dilly, a boy who, it is said, wouldn't have heard a fly. Recent, too, this case. Remember, they only discovered his corpse back in mid-January of 2020. A rough start to what's proven to be a bit of a bumpy year. But Harley isn't the intended focus of tonight's dead time story. I simply stumbled across him while sweeping another case of a chimney. One that I am certain has more to it than just heartbreaking folly. I kill a lot of insects. Flies, mosquitoes, wasps, millipedes, spiders, crickets. And each time I do, there's a little moment of regret. The smallest amount of guilt, dread even, that washes over me. And I have long suspected the reason why is because insects are maybe the cousins, children, brethren of some powerful alien species out there. Perhaps the most powerful. And the measure of a soul in the end may not be in how it treated fellow human beings during its time possessing one, but of how it treated the lowest, the most reviled, the least valued, life form. The insects. It's a pleasure to love a puppy, to be kind to a kitten, to feed the geese on a cozy fall evening down by the water. Being good to feel good isn't difficult. It's selfish, really. Easy. Enjoyable. But to treat the creepy, crawly, stinging things with as much consideration, stewardship, respect, now that's something that surely counts somehow. And by all accounts, the two boys that we're dealing with here tonight were that type. The type that couldn't help but show mercy on everything. How many people do you know of who truly could not hurt a fly? I can count on one suddenly murderous hand those I have met who are that gentle, that simple, that good. The meek shall inherit the earth. They are in short supply, the meek. We're all puffed up with the power anonymity gives us through this new device I find attached to my murderous hand these days, this idiot phone. I hear it more and more, feel it more and more every day. 
a seething hatred of ourselves for what we've become, for what we failed to be. We hate ourselves and each other. And it's not even a passionate hate. It's a fed up, exhausted hate. The most dangerous as it means we're ready, close, to simply just giving up. Our differences, politically, socially, culturally, our differences are less nuanced than ever before. Hard to fully grasp for those who think critically and easy to side on for those who don't. We're so tired of ourselves, so sick of each other. The spark has died, and a glow, a bluish glow over all of our faces has replaced it. We need to build a log cabin and hunt our food again, plant a garden, reconnect with nature, reset our priorities. But the forest is shrinking. It's become too expensive, difficult to go back to. So now what? Seriously, what? The crickets know. It has all played out before above their mindless song on countless planets under many moons. Now what? Nothing. Nothing. When things like what we're revisiting here are proven possible to happen, I just feel like, I don't know, I feel like nothing. As they must have, these two boys who died in chimneys. It's just nothing. What am I trying to describe? You know the emptiness that follows viewing a mukbang video where a live octopus gets its head bit into by some fucking dead-eyed Chinese girl? That. That kind of nothing. If a young man screams in the forest and no one is around to hear it, does he make a sound? 18-year-old Joshua Vernon Maddox, by all accounts, wouldn't have heard a fly. So how did he end up skeletonized by clouds of them after he screamed for help for days in the woods? He might still be screaming, if the Beyond works similarly to the movie Beetlejuice, which I assume it does. Still screaming for his life, still screaming for some justice for what was taken from him. The meek, I assume, are not so much so once they realize they've been had, that the worst choice one can make is no choice at all. But I'm speaking in riddles, hiding behind them. Truth be told. Claustrophilia is a disorder characterized as, quote, an abnormal desire for confinement in an enclosed space, sometimes sexual. Some people feel extreme pleasure or comfort from being bound or squeezed into a tight spot. There are kids, kids like Harley Dilly perhaps, who enjoy being squeezed. I bring Harley back into this as he reminds me of my own son, who loves, absolutely thrills at being hugged tightly. It makes him feel secure. Some kids, some people, constantly feel like they are falling apart the way I feel watching an octopus's head being chomped into. And a tight hold gives them a sense of being whole, if just for a moment. This is rough, brutal for me to write, to say, but it might be at least a part of the reason Harley didn't hesitate to squeeze himself down that chimney. Though for Joshua Maddox, I believe the reason he ended up in one was not because he wanted to experiment sexually in such a confine as that of a chimney, as some people have suggested, though I could be wrong. 
Joshua Maddox was born on March the 9th of 1990 in Woodland Park, Colorado, a beautiful section of a beautiful state with a population of less than 10,000 within the Pike National Forest. In the year 2006, his older brother Zach committed suicide after losing a battle with depression, an incident that likely affected greatly the kind soul of his younger brother Josh. Joshua lived with his siblings and father following their family splitting apart around the time of Zach's suicide, and it is known that Joshua had it in his mind to never allow the same fate as his brother to befall him. He took solace in music and writing, as well as dreams of someday leaving Colorado to set off on an adventure that would slingshot him away from the pain of his past and land him in a brand new life, all of his own design. On March the 8th of 2008, one day before his 18th birthday, the lanky, good-natured kid said, see you in a bit, to his sister, then casually loped out of his house to go for a walk in the woods, like he often did. One he would never return from, and one that his family initially believed to have been his way of initiating a plan he'd spoken of so many times before. It was to them maybe reasonable that Josh would decide his 18th birthday to be a fitting time to cut loose, though once he'd failed to contact them over the next few days, then weeks, they began to worry. It wasn't like Josh to simply disappear. He had too much empathy to leave his family wondering and worrying. There were friends that were highly concerned, along with Josh's family, about his complete about face off the edge of the earth. Josh was the type of kid who would have been proud, happy to share any new adventure with those who cared for him. And soon, regardless of the authorities adamantly claiming that this type of thing happens elsewhere all the time, they began to spin theories. One in particular that should have developed into a web had the spider not been shooed away so carelessly. Not long before his disappearance, Josh had begun to hang out with an oddball named Andrew Newman. The two, it was said, had made plans to take off to New Mexico together at some point, and Andy, as he was known, had started to take up much of Josh's time. Some felt that Andy was alienating Josh from his other friends and keeping the young bohemian sweetheart all to himself. Andy Newman, though pretty small, was an imposing character, and many were relieved when not long after Josh's disappearance, he disappeared too. It was assumed by many that Josh and Andy had taken off together. But in the year 2015, seven years after the two had both deserted their hometown apparently, the skeleton of Joshua Maddox was discovered in a nearby abandoned cabin that was being torn down by the owner. A place once known as Thunderhead Ranch, a former gambling and drinking lodge located not 20 minutes from Joshua Maddox's home. Josh apparently had never taken off for greener pastures after all. In fact, according to investigators, he'd, for whatever reason, attempted to enter the cabin via the chimney and become horribly stuck in the chute. Joshua's skeleton was found folded in half, with its legs up over his head as if he'd climbed into the chimney head first. Then he'd somehow become rolled around, perhaps trying to climb back up, and eventually succumbed to suffocation. He was wearing only a thermal shirt when discovered. The rest of his clothing, sweater, pants, underwear, and socks, were found inside the cabin, folded neatly and resting on the hearth of the fireplace. Now, 
You should know that the owner of the cabin had not been inside for years. The few times he had come back to check on the place, he'd been dismayed by a rank odor that he chalked up to being a dead rodent or raccoon and left the place alone, knowing he would eventually tear it down and not to worry about it. When that time came, seven years after Joshua Maddox's disappearance, the demo team uncovered remains after tearing open the chimney. And though this ruined a good portion of what should have been considered a crime scene, the owner was able to confirm that before the chimney had been demolished, the top had been closed off by rebar cross-sections to prevent animals from climbing in. Also, inside the cabin there was a breakfast bar in an odd spot. It had been dragged over to cover the firebox opening at some point. And not by the owner. Joshua didn't enter the chimney half-naked from the top, head-first, shimming his slender, but not this slender, frame past rusty metal with his genitals exposed to get into the filthy chimney. Nor did he pull that heavy breakfast bar behind him as he climbed up into the chimney, again nearly naked in the waning days of Colorado's winter. Clearly, he was forced in, or placed within the chimney. There were no signs of foul play on Joshua's skeleton. And despite all the disturbing details I've laid out, Joshua Maddox's death was determined to be the result of misadventure. Andrew Newman, meanwhile, during the time that Joshua's family was praying that their boy had simply disappeared with the intent of embarking upon a completely brand new life, had, as he'd once planned with his missing friend Josh, taken off to New Mexico, and at some point ended up in Albuquerque, where Andy allegedly killed a man with a knife. In this case, Andy had been visiting a friend who was taking care of another man, doing some kind of hospice care by the sounds of things, when Andy's friend had left him alone with the unnamed invalid. Andy found some reason to become a homicidal maniac eventually, maybe as a result of drugs. And when the friend returned from what is thought to have been a shower, he found his client full of stab wounds, his eyes empty of life. Andy was, of course, gone, no doubt with a few stolen bucks in his pocket and a plan to score some meth on his mind. Andy Newman would later brag to cellmates about this incident, as well as the killing of a woman in Taos, New Mexico, before stuffing her in a barrel, a claim that would be corroborated by the fact that a girl was indeed found stuffed in a barrel at along Andy's trail, but her killer had already been identified then possibly, likely, falsely accused and incarcerated. Also, and this is a big also, Andrew Newman had confided to a friend that he'd killed Joshua Maddox and stuffed him in a hole. Yet, Andrew Newman, from what F.T. Norton could gather, is incarcerated currently in Texas for burglary and assault charges, is wanted in Florida for probation violations, but eventually will be free again. He was arrested for the murder of the invalid. Fuck, I'm tired of saying invalid. I don't know why I wrote that. It seems so disrespectful. An invalid? An invalid person, basically? How about he was arrested for the stabbing of that guy his friend was taking care of? Using, more likely. But the murder charge didn't stick. It was dismissed due to lack of evidence. Apparently, Andy's friend didn't feel up to testifying, for whatever reason. Maybe the fact that Andy is a psychopath. I've been haunted by these two boys, Joshua Maddox and Harley Dilly, 
for the entire month of September. Harley Dilly won't stop creeping into my dreams. He won't stop trying to tell me something. And all I can do is hug my own son even tighter than he would normally find comforting. I bowed down before my son the other day out of just like anguish over this case. Just looking at him and thinking about Harley Dilly, it broke me down for a couple of minutes. Not minutes, for about 15 seconds. I broke down for what I'd been working on in regards to Dilly to forever 14-year-old Harley Dilly, then looked up and apologized. An act which provoked my son to reach out, hug me, and say, It's okay, Dad. I know it's been hard for you. I asked him, laughing, what's been hard for me? And you know what he said? He said, this life. And that was it for me. My son's meek. He's not weak, but he is meek. He's the type who would not hurt a fly. He's the type that when the time comes, I hope, will inherit the earth. Joshua Maddox, that was me. I was a wayward, bohemian type, 18-year-old, set out searching for meaning and maybe true love, and I thank my lucky stars every day that I never came across an Andy Newman or a David Most or a Charlie Manson. And now I stay vigilant to ensure my boy will never fall so far from my grasp as to think the interior of a chimney might be a nice place, a nicer place to be than the world I've failed to create for him.